how do we pull in historic big data sets, but also couple it with real-time data and help people stop sampling and actually focus on what matters? There is not a single executive I've spoken to in the intervening period who didn't have a moment of taking a deep breath and raising their eyebrows when they heard that stat. The, the consequences are severe if things go wrong, but therefore the weighting of risk almost um, is out proportion to the weighting of opportunity. Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, we welcome Shelley Copsey, co-founder and CEO at Field. Field empowers utility field teams and managers to make data-driven decisions in real time, leading to greater safety, productivity, and quality assurance. It enables greater spans of controls, remote site management, and insight on job productivity. Field was built by BCG in partnership with SGN, the leading UK natural and green gas distributor, as its anchor customer and a shareholder. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it'd really help promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. And with that, let's welcome Shelley. Hey, Shelley, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Jack. Excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So Shelley Copsey, I'm CEO and co-founder at Field. Um, at Field, we focus on the execution phase of, of Field Force operations. Come here after quite a, a long and varied career. I've spent time in consulting, largely on infrastructure and financial performance. I've had a bit of time at Australia's National Science Agency, the CSIRO, where I focused on the commercialisation of data technologies. Previously led a geospatial company and now I'm working at the intersection of artificial intelligence and major infrastructure, looking at how we can enable the people that, that work on that infrastructure to do their jobs better by giving them modern day tools that, that let them do a fabulous job every day. I know you work across a couple of different sectors, big focus within utilities and other types of large infrastructure. What would you say are the current challenges that we're currently faced with as a sector? The, the things that I'm seeing on repeat, labour shortages. They're caused by the retiring workforce where I don't think we're harnessing the skills of people that don't necessarily want to be in the field anymore, but, but they're leaving at pace. We're seeing young people come in. It's hard to get enough people into the industry. It's not like sexy necessarily, but the ones that we get in, how do we train them? How do we keep them? How do we keep them adequately supervised and learning in dangerous environments? That labour force challenge is huge. We see regulatory pressure. Can you get your costs down while you're keeping your people safe? Sometimes people look at construction, we largely work on infrastructure and they're like, is that the same? Most infrastructure is built um, in that space under public-private partnerships. So it is typically the same. A private sector participant needs to drive higher returns while a, a government body is going to own an asset at the end. And those, those conflicts of, of cost, keeping people safe and a well-trained labour force just present everywhere we go around the globe. Just picking up on that point around safety, the UK is really going through a bit of an interesting period at the minute. We have some real mega projects when it comes to infrastructure. You've got your low attempts crossing. Obviously, you've got your HS2. Got a massive investment into the energy infrastructure, into energy infrastructure through the Great Grid Upgrade, the National Grid, and, and many others. You've got Ampate quickly approaching within the water sector. How would you say we're doing from a safety perspective? How safe are our sites typically in the UK? I think if we look over the past decade, safety at best has plateaued. At worst, when you 
adjust for COVID working days, we've gone backwards and actually we've seen quite a rise in like the severity of incidents. And we see incidents that maybe had stopped taking place in the field. What do I think is causing this? I think firstly, if you look at grid upgrades, if you look at energy transition, if you look at some of these mega projects like the Tides Cro- the Thames Crossing, that there's a big change in what is taking place in the field and the work that we're asking people to do. And I think whenever you see a moment of great change, you always have to understand that risk profiles are going to increase. I think what the, the sad thing, though, is at the moment is that during this same period, there's been like a wave of technology revolution come through that could have been better harnessed to keep people safe in the field. And we're just not seeing companies adopt those technologies at the pace that we'd like. Field was recently involved in the study looking at what are the causes, what's stopping companies adopting these technologies at pace. And I think one of the things that I loved that I saw HSD do was begin to say, what are the regulatory sandboxes that we could stand up that might make people more willing to experiment and and try new things? But most definitely the advent of AI in a very accessible format, models that we can push onto people's mobile phones that are very usable in some of the offline and difficult environments that our our typical user operates in. There are technologies that we should be using to pull down those rates of incidence, ultimately make sure that every person that walks out the door in our industry knows that they're going to come home safely every day. Every one of them deserves that. Absolutely. And you spoke about some of the challenges that you saw working with HSE in terms of actually tackling some of these big safety-related priorities. Could you maybe expand on that? First instance, there's not a, a really strong understanding of how artificial intelligence can impact the daily life of the field worker. So something that I find on repeat, and let's use the water industry because they're fabulous at this, internet of things and data coming off sensors, right? If I talk to any executive in the water industry, they can really quickly wrap their head around sensor data, um, climate data, soil data, everything that's out there, and they can understand that a predictive model can be built and real-time information can be captured that lets them figure out priority sites to get to. If you step back, they've got a big data challenge and it's complex data and it's a lot of information coming at them at real time. These are big, chunky models, right? But they've ingested it and they've figured out how to use it. Somehow, I I don't yet see that people understand that when a human is actually involved in doing the piece of work, that they likewise have effectively a big data problem, right? We've got different people who behave differently. There are privacy concerns that are super important that we need to address. Um, and there's job differences. But I think the first thing that we saw was this is an industry that has very much grappled in many ways with artificial intelligence and predictive models, but applying the same thinking to to what you can do um, to predict how a human may behave on site and emerging site risk is just not a spot that most people are really familiar with. So to me, the first thing is an education piece. How do we help people understand the art of the possible? But then I think the next thing that would go to is an experimentation piece, right? So the industries that we work in, not talking out of school when I say they experiment slowly, but when they experiment slowly, it means in the meantime that people will be seriously hurt and seriously injured. So to me, the next thing is how do we actually bring more innovation um, capacity into these organisations so that they will experiment at pace? And how do we help them? This was like a big thing that we discovered. How do we help them going for a proof of concept to a scaled up deployment? That's something that we found that most organisations struggle with. Lots of the people that we spoke to through the sandbox, they've got great innovation arms and really capable people. 
people, but maybe they haven't yet invested in that scale-up function so that they've got a tried and tested path to push things that work through the organisation. I think the final thing that I'll say is that, that people are nervous about the repercussions if they do a deployment of a product in the safety space and they introduce new risk and something goes wrong. When you introduce a new way of working, you're going to decrease some risks and you will very likely increase other risks. But what I see on repeat is an outweighted concern about the new risk without actually saying, but what risk have I eliminated? And if the, the new risk actually on balance is lower than everything you've got rid of, it makes sense to transition. But that kind of trade-off is maybe not there. And I just see a, a lot of concern about potential regulatory impacts. People have personal jail time. Um, the, the consequences are severe if things go wrong, but therefore the weighting of risk almost um, is out proportion to the weighting of opportunity. And Going back to your point around artificial intelligence and the role that technology can play in tackling some of that risk on construction sites, is the ultimate goal when it comes to the future of construction sites to remove the need of humans to then completely eliminate risk? Or do you think that there's a different approach that we want to be heading towards? a long way from construction being fully automated. I'd be probably naive and laughed at in three years if I said there'll um, never be no humans on a construction site. But I, I don't see in the next decade we're going to move to a point where it's fully automated with, with robots. And therefore, I think in the meantime, we need to sit and say, um, again, it's an industry where productivity has plateaued. There are studies saying that we're way behind even, say, the 1950s. And we've got all of these major infrastructure projects and we just don't have enough people today. So whilst I think the future is going to look very different and it will probably have way less humans than it does today, I think there's like a, a big opportunity over the next decade to still make substantial. It, it's not even just the productivity gain. It's that if you don't have enough labour force to do what you need to do for a growing population, you need to help those people that you do have do more in the time that they have available. So in some ways, I don't necessarily see that there's a, a trade-off versus just an absolute impetus to do something today. Just on the topic of trade-off, I know that the infrastructure market is increasingly under more and more cost pressure from regulators, from maybe bill payers, from government. There's a lot of downward pressure from a cost perspective. And often companies are exploring ways to be able to maintain their margins, which are already pretty tight. In this environment of cost reduction pressures versus skill shortages, that must have quite severe implications when it comes to safety. What are you seeing on that front? I think the first thing that we see is that a safe job site is typically a highly productive job site, right? The two tend to go hand in hand and quality comes in with it. So I think that's really important. I think that we're not thinking in the smartest ways that we could, though, about the entire labour force that's available to us. Right? We all know the great resignation has taken hold, but we, we still operate in an era of how do I supervise a job site? I go to it. How do I supervise 20 job sites? I sample by going site to site. When I think about where technology is today and the kind of research streams we have at Field, for instance, is how do we pull in historic big data sets, but also couple it with real-time data and help people stop sampling and actually focus on what matters? 
right? So I think in the first instance, we, we can get away from that trade-off by helping people understand from data what really counts. And when you, you look at data, it's interesting what you might focus on versus traditional people. Just again, a, a little snippet of what we look at. If I think about telematics data, the typical use of telematics data is to tell someone off because they break too heavily all the time, it's dangerous and they're ruining the tyres, right? What do I think about in terms of productivity and safety? I think about who's normally the safest driver in the world and who's driving badly today, right? So it's how do I begin to look for outliers in data in real time? And I think if I use that, that can let me stop sampling and I can focus where it counts. But also if I just talk about this whole world of I need to be at site how do we harness everybody that has retired or the, the really great performers that have retired over the last five years probably would be happy to get a bit of pocket money, right? How do we help them see 10 job sites and supervise them from their kitchen table for two hours a week? And how do we let them, say, coach some of the young people to be the, the rock stars of the future? Again, it's a different way of working. It is helping them know where to pay attention. It is showing them stuff in real time. It's helping them understand that young kids, like we see most people who come into industry, they're happy to use phones. They're happy to have goggles on and someone coach them. But that requires organisational change and different ways of working. And yeah, it's a really interesting idea having maybe folks who are semi-retired have a huge amount of industry expertise and were the sort of best in kind. I say this to everybody on repeat that I think we should be doing it. At the moment, people are looking at me quizzically, but I think that's because the industry norm remains I supervise by going to site. And I'm like, how do we help them supervise remote from site? And it's funny, again, if I go back to my example of like IoT and sensors and predictions versus humans, right? We've all got our head around that very expensive specialised piece of kit from Germany that's been installed, I'll use Australia, been from there, and that it's not practical for the person to fly back and forth and we're going to get remote assistance in managing it, right? In some ways, we've already got our head around the fact we can do this. But when I think about it just in a business as usual coaching, again, it's still not the norm because the way that we supervise normal job sites is to have somebody rock up and look at them. So I, I, my personal view is over the next couple of years, we're going to see an absolute paradigm shift in terms of which jobs do we need to look at and who can look at them. I think so. I think so. And I guess the sort of scale of infrastructure projects that we, a lot of your asset owners yes. around the UK now have, we've got to overcome that hurdle and we've got to get better with our project controls, our program reporting, our metrics. And through that, you, you need to digitize it, right? And there's the, there is that sort of evolution that we still need to go through. And we just need to make it simple for people. So again, I often have people say to me, oh, it must be hard to train 3,000 field workers to use your product. They're dispersed this, that, and the other. The thing that I always think about is when we change banks and we download the new banking app, nobody comes out and teaches us how to use that in hand-to-hand -hand combat. I think there's, again, a misnomer in industry that software has to be designed to be complex for the field. The challenge is actually on the software providers and the people that are working, running projects and procurement to find the simple, easy solutions that just let you digitise effortlessly, right? This shouldn't be hard in 2023. But that's also about looking, I think, at products that are designed to be mobile, not looking at products that uh, were on server, were on desktops, have now been pushed to the cloud and pushed to mobile. They're archaic in design. You just need to look for modern solutions which is simple for people to use. No, absolutely. I think a good example of that sort of that realization, we very much went through with design. So, so much of design for a long 
time within the sector was done in, in 2D. And all of your data would come back in 2D, like your sort of flat CAD designs and everything else. Yes. The world is in 3D. The world yeah. assets, the, the physical environment, everything's 3D. We've got to be looking at our designs in real world context. And I think that people are, the higher performing asset owners and folks around the sector are really coming over that hurdle now. They've, they've seen the realization of actually merging your data into one. So you're making the decision on a design in real world context. Yeah. But this feels like there is still one to want to come across when it comes to project controls. You know, again, we see our strongest performing customers. They know that field can help them in the moment, figure out where they should focus their attention. But they also know we're almost an overlay onto a 3D model, right? It's an operational overlay. The, the field customers that are driving the highest productivity and safety gains customers that understand that, that the data that they get in the moment can drive change on the day, but they also understand that it's part of a more comprehensive data set that they should couple with other pieces of data they have. So going back to the example that you spoke of, they've got a, a 3D model of a project. They'll have other geospatial information coming in and we're one more overlay onto it, but they view this as a big piece of data to let them run an entire project. It is quite different to thinking about having five separate data streams to do different things with. I'm conscious there might be folks listening who haven't yet gone through that journey as an organization. What advice would you give to maybe decision makers in organizations that are really yet to overcome that sort of information barrier in order to really tap into all of the data that we have in the, in the real world and our construction projects to help improve efficiency? The first thing that we say on repeat is that data about the execution of field workforce activities is usually like a black hole data set, right? It doesn't exist. We all know that the data is created, but it's almost thrown away in the moment because nobody captures it. When something goes wrong on site, if we think about how it's typically solved, phone calls, WhatsApp, messenger, email, it will be dispersed, but it's never sitting in an enterprise system. So I think the first thing that I, that I always say to people is just give it a go. Just try pushing um, data about the execution of field workforce activities through a platform and have an open mind as to what you might see as you begin to build your, your data set. What we normally see from there, though, is people, and, and this is actually in, in really strongly performing companies that we work with as well, there's usually quite a gap between what they think happens on site and what really does. And it doesn't matter if you ask the remote manager or you ask the person on site, because it's never tracked, people actually begin to lose sight of the scale of some of the inefficiencies. So my favorite example is with SGN. In the first year, we very deliberately tracked the number of hours of standing time on site. And we tracked 16,000 hours across 750 workers. Now, there is not a single executive I've spoken to in the intervening period who didn't have a moment of taking a deep breath and raising their eyebrows when they heard that stat. I think everybody knows a third of jobs will often have standing time, but the actual volume of standing time and some of the reasons that cause it in 2023 that we still don't pack trucks properly to give people the kit that they need, that we're not maybe predicting that the valve that they think they're going to change, the likelihood is it could be a different valve from data. Let's give them both right? These are the types of things that they're very low hanging fruit. But if people don't understand the quantum of the hours of the standing time, very hard to make the right investments to fix it. Wow. 
Okay. And data can solve all that. It sounds as though there's a whole wrath of organizational change and wake up needed to tackle that. So what we found with our data is that about 75% of that standing time could be addressed is things like, can I change my SLAs with third-party service providers or do I need to have more service providers so I can get the right boards and barriers to site? If you think about traffic lights, did I have the right intel? Did I pull the right data from Google Maps about whether it was a two-way system or a three-way system? It goes on, but so much of it was able to be tackled through doing a simple cost-benefit analysis. And again, I think the good thing with data, you can also figure out when it's not worth tackling because the gain isn't big enough, right? So you know where to pay your attention. But the opportunities that we found, so much low-hanging fruit. I think the other thing that we see in this industry and HSE has been big on working hour directives, 12, 16 hours and what must happen, and we're all concerned, not we all know that may come down in, in the future and there's concern about the impact that's going to have on the ability of a utility to carry out its operations. Once you start getting all of this data, uh, customers of ours are in a position to talk to unions about shift patterns and all sorts. But if you don't have data, it's really hard to influence people to, to think differently if you're just talking from anecdotes in 2023. Just keen to get your perspective on the element of return on investments. And obviously with safety, there is a very clear return on investment, helping people get home at the end of the day. Beyond safety, what other return on investments do you typically see by way of these large utilities investing into technology capabilities? Again, um, I go to putting technology in people's hands and seeing what they can achieve with it. What we tend to find is that I've said earlier about let me sample, let me go site to site and let's hope I land where it counts most. When all of a sudden we give people data that shows them where they should focus their attention, if I go to those 16,000 hours of, of jobs that were blocked, if I've actually told my manager remote, here's the job where it counts most to get it unblocked, all of a sudden they've gone from being reactive to proactive. If we can tell them jobs that we think will become blocked as the day progresses, they can send a support crew out and not let that job get blocked in the first place. So that job blocker and helping our customers unblock more quickly but stop more of it happening, that's a huge contributor to why we're getting to productivity gains. But I'm also going to go back to the human element. We all like to feel valued at work. We can't ever get away from that. And I don't know if we all necessarily think about that in terms of the frontline workforce. One thing that we see on repeat at field is that when people get to the end of the day, they're taking a video of the site that they um, are leaving. We're analysing that site, making sure it's safe and in a great condition. And then that gets shown to various people in the organisation. We, we see pride in the field workers that after many years of their work being invisible, there's often anecdotes about do they leave it in a good state, what goes on. There's often a lot of negativity and discussion. They're getting to show what a great job they did. And again, I, I can't actually give you data for this one, which upsets me, but one of um, my points of view is that the happy field workers are actually being able to show the great job they're doing. Brilliant. Shelley, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your journey. Thank you for your time and speak to you soon. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.